Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. There's just something really special and serene about them. They have a, a gentle beauty, a quiet beauty. New Zealand wetlands don't have the big flashy species. We don't have hippos, we don't have flamingos. No, we've got, we've got little sundews that, that catch insects and eat them, so there's a sort of nasty little underbelly there of uh, carnivorous insect-eating plants, and we've got these mudfish that have got leathery skin instead of scales, and we've just got all these crazy little species that the more you learn about them, the more fascinating they are, and, and the more you want to protect them. Kia ora, no mai harumai ki te ao hurehanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko and Canon Danae. This fan of wetlands is Karen Denyer, the Executive Officer of the National Wetland Trust of New Zealand. We're standing at Rotopiko, Lake Serpentine, in the Waipa district, about half an hour south of Kirikiriroa Hamilton and just off the busy State Highway 3. It's nearly dusk, and I'll explain later why this timing is important. But the road is still quite busy, so you'll hear plenty of cars in the background. So Rotopiko is a complex, actually. So Rotopiko itself is a peat lake. There was one lake, which is why um, it just has a singular name. But in English, there are three named lakes, imaginatively named North, South and East Lake. So before the settlers and developers came to the area and started digging drains to, to make the area more suitable for farming, the water level was much higher and this was just one lake. So it has one Māori name, Rotopiko. And now it's been divided into three lakes with sort of swampy connections in between. The National Wetland Trust is working with Waipa District Council, DOC and Manafenua Nati Apakura to manage the site. It's a charitable trust that was established as a millennial project by the late Gordon Stevenson and David Lowry. They were quite concerned that we were losing wetlands, still losing wetlands, and probably the reason was not enough people cared about them. Why don't people care about them? Perhaps because they're harder to get into. And so they were thinking the people who care about wetlands uh, are the duck shooters, uh, the, uh, the iwi who still harvest materials from them, uh, the scientists, the people who can get into wetlands appreciate them. So they kind of set up this trust with the aim of getting people into wetlands mentally but also physically. So we developed a number of wetland trails around the country. We've encouraged DOC and, and supported other groups to put in walkways and interpretation panels to make wetlands safe and easy to access for anybody. And our big flagship project uh, that was the dream of Gordon Stevenson and David was to build a National Wetland Discovery Centre. And Rotopiko, this beautiful site, we were invited by Waipa District Council to, to build it here. There's no centre as yet, but Karen already has a spot picked out for it. The whole complex is a large site, 
40 hectares. But today we're exploring East Lake and the small patches of forest nearby, around which a predator-proof fence has been erected. There's also a wonderful ancient stand of kahikatea trees, about 400, 500-year-old trees. Some of them are really massive with pukatea. That would have been a swamp forest, but again with the drainage, the water's drained away, the soil has shrunk, and these trees are sort of almost perched up on tippy toes. It's quite extraordinary. You can almost look underneath the, the roots of these trees. They should have been in swampy soil, but now they're sort of in drier land and, and they're perched up on top of the surface. The lakes used to be surrounded by, by willow, very weedy sites, and Waipa District Council, DOC, Land, New Zealand Land Care Trust and the Wetland Trust have all been working together and now when we look around the lake we see kuta, the native um, spike sedge, we see manuka, we see kahikatea that's all been replanted and a really special little bog community. There's a path and boardwalk that wind around the lake and a jetty that you can stand out on with information and activities at different points around the circuit. The goal here is to restore this habitat to as close as they can get to what it once was. So we we probably never be able to completely restore the water level back to create the single lake that it was, but the lakes are still connected up by swampy areas and peaty areas in between, so they're still valuable habitat in their own right. What we'd love to do is, within the pest fence, we've eradicated everything except mice. Mice are a persistent problem for just about every pest fence sanctuary, but we'd love to see uh, some of the native species that would be typical of peat lakes returned here and, and those peat swampy areas. Some of them are present here already, so we do have the eels, the longfin and the shortfin eels here, and mudfish, the waikaka, which is a highly specialised little fish. They have more of a leathery skin than scales, and during dry periods they can actually sort of burrow into, um, into the side of banks underneath um, branches or, or roots and leaf litter and just sort of ride out the summer hibernating effectively and just breathing through their skin as long as it stays damp enough for them. So they are highly specialised peatland species. It's not just about the um, animals, there's specialised plants as well. And one of the classic um, species in New Zealand in our bogs is the giant cane rush, Sporanthus, and recently discovered by Corin Watts and um, named by Robert Hoare is Fred the Thread. He's the world's skinniest caterpillar and he was discovered living inside the cane rush stems and it's the only species it lives in. So both of those species are back at Rotopiko now. They've been returned by the New Zealand Landcare Trust who, who actually worked here before the Wetland Trust came on board. So we're actively recreating those bog plant communities with the giant cane rush and wire rush and the tangle ferns and other species that are associated with them. In terms of birds, so the Manuka's great habitat for our little matata, the fern bird, and those swampy areas are great for matuku, the, the Australasian bittern. They tend to be infrequent here because it's a small site and they move around the landscape, but they definitely visit here. There's transmitted birds that have been detected here. We would love to bring back the cutest duck in the world, the pateki, and so we're working on, we've done some feasibility studies to see could we bring them back to not just Rotopiko but the entire Waipa Peak Lake complex and with that 2050 vision in the back of our mind, if we can achieve that, the future could be bright for pateki in this area, we could see them back in the Waipa. I think most of us are aware at this stage that wetlands are one of the habitats that have been majorly modified. And in terms of Aotearoa New Zealand, it's it's a huge, staggering number in terms of the loss of wetlands. It's like over 90%, is is. that correct? Yes, yes. Why is that the case? 
So wetlands are on flat land, it's highly productive land for um, agriculture and so and relatively easy to clear so dig some ditches and set fire to it and you, you know you've, you've got the basis for some good farmland. Um, whereas our forests are on steeper land, they're harder to get rid of because you've got a lot of lot more woody material to, to clear. So wetlands were just highly desirable places to, to clear and to create farmland and, and urban living. And other so estuaries uh, have been modified for things like marinas. Wetlands have been used for rubbish dumps. They just weren't really valued by, by the Western culture in New Zealand. So it was a case of people viewing the wetlands and not seeing them for the value of the habitat they provided and the carbon capture, which we seem to be finding out more and more about that the wetlands are really important for. Absolutely. And instead seeing it as, oh, that could be a field. Yeah. I mean, when, the, when this land was cleared, of course, carbon wasn't an issue. I mean, we, we didn't have threat of climate change. It wasn't a known thing. We really didn't have that high industrialisation in New Zealand. It's uh, just part of our history. It's not really a, a finger-pointing exercise, but we know better now and we should be much more aware of the values of wetlands now and much more in tune with um, protecting them for, for what they can do for us. As you say, climate change, that's a big thing. Carbon sequestration, our bogs are the permanent sinks for carbon sequestration. We hear a lot about plant trees, plant trees. That's great. Trees take up a lot of carbon into the wood and then the tree dies and it's released. The soil in the bogs is where the carbon is permanently stored. There are many different types of wetlands. There's uh, freshwater, there's estuarine, there's alpine, there's low-lying, all kinds of different kinds. But these these peat lakes are kind of a low-nutrient specific habitat that things have evolved to live in. Yeah, so the Waipa has got the greatest concentration of peat lakes in New Zealand, and I think anywhere, actually. I think it's it's unique internationally. There's about 31 peat lakes in the, sort of the Waipa, Waikato district areas. And they formed, my understanding is they formed around, well, even before the end of the Ice Age, um, a high vegetation growth rate started at the end of the Ice Age. So the vegetation was building up and building up faster than it could break down. So it's kind of like you're putting more stuff onto your compost heap and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so those built up around these depressions that filled with water at the end of the Ice Age and formed the peat lakes. And they were sort of impounded by these higher areas of peat. Since we started draining, they became less waterlogged, the bacteria was able to start working on breaking down that big compost pile and then it shrunk right down. And so now these lakes, instead of being entirely rainwater fed, uh, which is what they originally would have been, now there's overland flow bringing in nutrients. And so the nutrient level has increased in all of these peat lakes, but they still retain a lot of the, the natural qualities of peat lakes. So that dark tea stains, sort of Coca-Cola coloured water, and that's all the tannins coming out of the manuka and the other plants that are sort of build peat. Peat is basically just a big accumulation of unrotted plant material. And so while they are at threat from nutrients and weeds and pests, they're still pretty special systems for us internationally as, as well as nationally. So we've got a peat lake wetland complex with some rare native flora and fauna that has been looked after for years now. A predator-proof fence, predator removal, a wetland activity trail for school groups, reintroductions of native plants, replanting of kahakitea, ongoing weeding efforts. But it's under threat from something no one anticipated. The evidence, huh? It's everywhere. Oh, it's, oh, the leaves are just covered in bird poo. Yeah. Mm. It's like splatters of paint. Yeah. And now we're in yeah, summer. 
which is not too bad. But in winter time, let's say you come to this place and you know you clean the area, and you come the following morning, and again it's covered in bare poop. <laughs> so, so you've just scraped some of the yeah. pines off the floor right. of the forest, and you've kind of made a, a black yeah. canvas of and soil. The, and the following morning will be white. Nicolas Sandoval is a researcher at Wintec Tepukinga, who's come on board to help with the peat-like pest problem. Hundreds of thousands of sparrows and starlings, and their poop. We've ducked into a little group of trees for Nicolas to recover a sound recording device. I used it to collect monthly readings of the energy released by the birds. Because it's impossible, it's what, what you will see if you stay long enough tonight. It will be impossible to measure individual birds, because way too many. So I use the recorder and then a software called Raven Pro to capture the energy released by the, by the birds as a whole. And then we are able to measure any changes. There are so many birds that show up here every night that they can't be counted. So the aim here is to figure out some way not to track individual birds, the idea was to create a system that enables us to, to detect changes. They were implementing measures to try to get rid of the birds, but it was nothing robust to detect any changes. Let's say, okay, let's try this, this method today to get rid of the birds. But then they didn't have a, a measurement to see if that's working or not. And now with this, it's going to help us to do that. 130 bird species were brought to Aotearoa, New Zealand. 41 successfully established wild populations. It's hard to imagine that little sparrows and starlings are a threat to anything, especially as we stand in this little grove of trees with a single sparrow chirping away. But it's the sheer numbers. As a backup method to measure bird abundance, they've also used poo plates, core flute squares placed on the ground under the trees overnight to measure the coverage of bird poop as a proxy for the number of birds. The results seem to correlate well with the energy recordings. The poop lights are really good to measure the distribution. Okay, where in the reserve are the birds? Because at the moment are using mainly the, the recorders show for a, a, a meta of resources really because it's, it's easier. You just hang your recorder and you can leave it there for a couple of weeks and then you collect the energy. However, I will try to do a few plates as well because they, they are trying different, different things here to try, try to deter the birds to coming here. But the place will tell us, okay, there are less birds in this area, but now there are, are more birds you know, in another section of the reserve. It seems like that. So that's what the plate is used for the distribution. Nicolas and I rejoin the group and continue along the boardwalk around the lake until we get to a picnic table at the edge of the reserve next to the predator fence. The light starts to fade from the sky. Um, so it's getting closer to dusk and the problem is materialising in, wow, in, in large numbers. Yeah, this is just the start. So it's, it's just gone seven. What's Sunset's night, maybe 8, 8.30. And we're just starting to see the birds coming in now. And we seem to have the segregation almost of, of starlings coming in one side and, and sparrows from another. But uh, as time goes on, you're just, you're just going to see more and more and more. And that, that segregation almost breaks down. But yeah, look at the numbers now. 
it's just massive flocks of birds coming in and that's all starlings and they tend to stick together and this will continue for the next hour and a half now yeah. and get more and more Dr. Catherine Ross is a senior academic at Toi Ohomai Te Pukinga, and she's also having a crack at the bird counting problem. I got involved with work at Rotopico in 2020, mainly because of my interest in birds and trying to figure out a robust method for counting them as they're coming as they're coming in, as you can see now. Yeah, and still floods and flocks of them as we speak are going past, and there's no way that you could stand here with a clicker and capture them all. That's right. We did try to do that at the beginning, but you just realise it's far too um, person intensive. You know, unless you've got people all the way around the reserve at the same time doing that, it's a really difficult thing to do. So this was where our ideas of using cameras came about, using GoPro cameras um, stationed at different areas around the fence, facing up at the sky and taking pictures on time lapse as the birds fly over sounds like a really simple thing to do but there's actually been a lot of interesting science that's come into that because we realized very early on that if you have birds that are flying very high they're going to be over the camera for a longer period so you're more likely to double count them whereas birds that are flying low zip over the camera and you might even miss them so you need to be able to take into account how high these birds are flying and this is where I've been using 3d printed models of sparrows and taking pictures of them at set distances from the camera in order to get this um, relationship of how big does a bird that's flying 50 meters above the camera look on a GoPro. So it's been a really nifty piece of science to do. So that's what you have with you today, yep, that little black what, yep, shape? Yep, is yes. a... It's from a 3D model of a sparrow. Um, so you can see it's got a, a sparrow shape to it. The, st the starling shape would have much more pointed wings than this, so it is species specific. And one of the things we'll be looking at with the, the software we're using um, is can you actually tell the difference between a sparrow and a starling from its silhouette like that? Because even when we've had people with clickers, it's a monumental effort to try and sort out how many sparrows, how many starlings. You almost need one person counting sparrows and one person counting starlings. So if you could do that in an automated way from an image and the computer is counting it for you, that saves a lot of manpower, it saves a lot of money. They're coming in as a stream now. Hundreds zipping across the sky as the horizon darkens and starts the first blush of sunset pink. They settle into roost in the clumps of trees near the lake and the crest of the hill back up towards the road. But so what? These birds are bringing in massive amounts of nutrient. So they're coming in every night to roost because this is a, a, a rat-free place. It's the best hotel in town. There's not many other habitats around here of any type because we're in a big agricultural area. Before we put the fence up, these birds weren't coming in. And within just two years of us getting rid of all the pests inside the fence... Exotic birds started coming into roost in bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. And the extraordinary thing is we've got exactly the same habitat just outside the fence because a, a 10, 10 hectares of the 40 hectares is fenced. They don't roost there. They, they come over the fence and they roost inside the fenced area. And it's a problem because they poop. And I think Catherine's estimated something like half a million birds in the wintertime coming in. Half a million birds. Even if they pooped just two grams each a night, that's a thousand kilograms. And all that poop goes somewhere. So it's dropping onto the um, ground and then it's going to get washed into the lake. And that's our concern is that it's going to change the nutrient levels of the lake. 
potentially causing algal blooms, potentially causing E. coli breakouts and making it a lot less of a healthy habitat than it was. And that's the big irony, here we are trying to restore this wonderful site and it is a wonderful site and we've got this unintentional and, and, and kind of unexpected problem of every starling and sparrow in the district comes in here to roost at night and they come from tens of kilometres away we, we think. Catherine has done some testing of the water that drains into the lake at different points and increased nutrient levels are showing up as you get closer to the lake and the trees around it. Roosting happens in other fenced eco-sanctuaries too, says Karen, but they don't have the highly sensitive low-nutrient peat lake, and most of them are much bigger, so they can probably afford to just let the birds take over a portion. And as visitors, we've probably never seen it in any of these places, because, well, this is something that really only becomes apparent at night. Because it was happening at night, so obviously I'd be working here during the day, go home, hadn't really noticed and one time I just was the winter time and I was walking through the forest and I heard this weird noise and I was like what is that and it was almost kind of like a helicopter taking off this little sort of noise and it was hundreds and hundreds of birds flying in front of me and I, I thought what what's going on here? We head back along the boardwalk around the lake. It's getting closer to dark now and the trees have filled up with birds. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Against the darkening sky, they're just these noisy shadows. You can hear them chattering constantly and see groups wheeling off to fly a few metres away as we move underneath. This is a recording taken from the same place we collected Nicolas's sound device earlier in the day, with that one sparrow chirping. And then Nicolas claps his hands. So that noise of thousands of birds, the, the wing beats, that was that noise that I heard that one night which first alerted me to this issue when I was out here at night and walking along the forest and there was just that whir of, of wings. So what to do about it? Well, they have been trying different solutions. So we tried a bit of laser light disturbance, that wasn't effective. We've tried a little bit of noise disturbance that more or less just upset the neighbours and didn't really deter the birds terribly much. Um, we had tried a little bit of live shooting, that put them off for about a week and then they just came back. We've tried a product, a hazer fogger sort of product that you, um, that you put into a big mister machine and it sort of floats off and, and gets, up their, gets up their nose literally. It's, it's like pepper spray for birds hasn't really been effective. Nick's had students trying some of the traditional Japanese methodologies of wood vinegar. Uh, we, we haven't really had the great success yet, so we are working our way down through these things. But because we've got the data from, from Nick and Catherine on the bird numbers, we, we know that they're not being effective. And so the Wetland Trust has been forced to move down the list of options to less desirable and more controversial deterrents. Are they here because there's no rats? Well, let's put in rats and find out. It's a little bit contentious, but we haven't got to the stage with our sanctuary yet that we've put in a lot of sensitive species. So we have returned two threatened species. They're the giant cane rush and a tiny little caterpillar that lives inside it. They're not really at any risk from rats. There are some native species in here, but by putting in just ship rats, the climbing rats, we're hoping those wetland birds will be safer because it's the Norway rats that tend to go into the wetter areas. And we want the ship rats because we want them to get up in the trees and basically just annoy these birds. 
because there's got to be something that makes it worth them flying all the way in and they're coming in from every direction and putting up with the noise of each other and, and putting up with you know the, the crowded situation they're fighting for space there's got to be some big draw card here and if it's just a few rats that pips outside that they might, if they might experience rats in here they might think well let's just go back to where we were because mm. this place is no better than where we were and it's just really crowded and noisy that's our theory it's an experiment and um and we'll be testing that for about a three-month period and seeing if that's effective it doesn't sound like a long-term solution though it's not ideal but there were rats here before we thought it'd be great to get rid of them perhaps we've created a worse problem perhaps half a million pest birds are worse than 30 odd rats and so we've just got to make these environmental trade-offs if it works perhaps we just need to pulse it we've got rid of rats uh, once before it took about two weeks to get rid of them it's not hard for us to get rid of rats out of here so if it works if the birds move on we can then get rid of the rats and see how quickly the birds come back maybe they'll stay away for a year maybe they'll come back maybe we put rats in for another couple of months and get rid of them we might just have to play this rat and bird game <laughs> actually karen's least favorite game because there's no moving forward to build a center to reintroduce new species to any of their next ambitious steps until this wicked problem is solved i checked in with karen just last week to see how things were going there's been a lot to work through because this isn't really a normal process for new zealand There are no guidelines for reintroducing predators to your predator-free area. They've put a few rats in, but haven't seen significant declines in the birds as yet. They're hoping to trap some more live rats to release in there soon. In the meantime, they haven't given up testing some other disturbance methods in combination with this. An automated light system and maybe even a falcon-shaped drone. They're also now working with researchers from Niwa to try to address the water quality issue, treating the water before it drains into the lake to strip out the nutrients. Hopefully they can figure out a solution and get back on track. A lot of jostling around for position. They're trying to find their preferred site. I mean, individually they're so tiny, but it's just sheer numbers. It's sheer numbers. It's... Phenomenal number of birds. Namihi, thanks to Karen Denyer of the National Wetland Trust of New Zealand, Catherine Ross of Toy Ohomai Te Pukenga, and Nicolas Sandoval of Wintech Te Pukenga. Ko Klerken Kanana Ho Te Kaihotu o Te Ne Hotaka i Afina Mai a Liz Garten Rawa ko Ellen Rikers. I produced this episode with help from Liz Garten and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Steve Burridge and Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Kia faia te ne kone iparangi i te tahi taupanga paiake kia koe. Follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast app. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And there'll be photos and links related to this story up there if you want to learn more. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. Te koe i mai. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.